This is Brand and New from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. Welcome to Brand and New. I am Audrey Dove. The cost of IP litigation have skyrocketed over the recent years with big cases such as Stack Electronic versus Microsoft or Fonar versus General Electric totaling over $120 million of expenses. In this context, mitigating the risks associated with being sued or having to sue a third party for IP infringement has become a strategic matter for businesses, with IP insurance coverage as the cornerstone to effectively protect against those risks. But what is IP insurance and what types of policies from standard to specialty actually cover IP owners' needs and their risks and why should they consider them? And how do these policies work in practice? Who are they directed to? So we have the chance today uh, to have Jack Flug, Managing Director at March, one of the world's leading insurance brokers and risk advisors, operating in 130 countries and serving commercial and individual clients. Jack has been with March since 1995 and is based in New York, USA. So thank you, Jack, for joining us today and welcome to Brennan You. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Most of us, as professionals, are familiar with our company's coverage when it comes to general commercial liability, auto liability, workers' compensation, and even the increasingly critical cyber insurance coverage. IP insurance seems more of an outlier in this landscape. So what is IP insurance and what type of risks does it typically cover? And can those risks be covered by general commercial liability policies at all? And that is a very sort of broad question, Audrey. Mm -hmm. So I will endeavor to give you sort of an answer that hopefully will be of uh, value to both you and your listeners. So the way we look at it at Marsh is we look at intellectual property insurance in what I'll call five different sort of buckets or flavors. The first, the more traditional one, if you will, is defensive intellectual property insurance. This is the most traditional one that is out there. This is a policy that protects and insures intellectual property. It protects their products and services from an external attack and can backstop and insures outbound indemnity obligations. And I'll go through what that means in a moment. So what's covered under a traditional intellectual property policy? The defense costs and damages both settlements and judgments, arising from a third party's allegation that an insured has violated the third party's intellectual property rights. Very straightforward. I will go and allege that you have, by utilizing some technology, you've infringed on my patents, and I sue you, and you have this IP policy in place, and all things being equal from whatever exclusions may or may not be there, the defense expenses the obligations that may come up if there's a settlement or a judgment would be covered under traditional policy. Now, the one thing that I mentioned earlier under this sort of umbrella term of defensive intellectual property insurance was contractual liability. And I wanna take a brief moment just to explain what that is. That is if you're the insured 
and you have an obligation to indemnify a customer of yours if they are sued for IP infringement because of your activity. So I'm really the, the one being sued, but my customer is utilizing the same sort of technology, if you will, but directly as a result of my contractual obligation to them. So they are brought into the situation as well. That's the contractual indemnity that could also and would also be uh, covered under the traditional defensive intellectual property insurance. So that's bucket number one. Bucket number two is people refer to this as offensive intellectual property insurance or abatement insurance, if you will. Less prominent, uh, one that we spend very, very little time with here, but it is available out there and it does cover the costs of intellectual property enforcement matters, such as when an insured in this instance would file a suit against a third party and that suit would assert that the third party has infringed the insured's intellectual property. So the offense, so the coverage here is from the, if you will, the plaintiff point of view, as opposed to the normal insurance, which would be on the defensive side of things. In today's world, what we have seen on offensive IP insurance policies, it generally requires that a, uh, a prospective insured have a particular suit or matter in mind as they go to the few underwriters interested in this product line and make sure that they can describe to those underwriters what it is that they want the offensive cover for. The third bucket is what we define as specific contingency insurance. This is covers known risks and is appropriate for businesses that are seeking uh, things that you may have heard in the past, like litigation buyouts. Mm -hmm. uh, or known ongoing matters that would involve IP litigation. There's a subset of this insurance called judgment preservation, which has been utilized in some IP matters where judgments have been garnered against companies and then policy has been put in place to provide a little bit more certainty that if there's an appeal and if the appeal overturns the judgment, either all or some portion of that judgment would still remain as uh, a viable asset of uh, the winner of the underlying matter. The last two areas, one is trade secret value insurance. And trade secret is uh, an offshoot of intellectual property. It protects an insured from loss due to misappropriation or theft or unauthorized disclosure of its own trade secrets. In many instances, it is difficult to get this particular coverage under traditional IP insurance. There are some ways that you can do it during an underwriting process. You can also buy an independent standalone policy for just this component, but it is a little bit different than what we consider more traditional intellectual property, patents, copyrights, and the like. And uh, that's why we have segregated it out because it is available on a standalone basis. The last one, the last bucket, if you will, is what we term today as IP insured financing. This is a policy that helps organizations, growth stage companies who are looking for, in many instances, bridge financing uh, between series uh, you know, offerings uh, that they have. Uh, it utilizes the intellectual property patents 
and a variety of other things, if you will, as collateral in the possibility of obtaining a loan. The insureds in this instance are not the companies that have the IP, but rather the lenders, but the product works in concert with all the parties. So therefore it would work with the lender, it would work with the company that is looking for the loan and has the intellectual property and in an effort to try and secure and assist for these growth stage companies to get uh, debt financing. So those are, from our standpoint, from my standpoint, if you will, the five sort of buckets of IP. I would like to go a little bit further on your second bucket. IP insurance is most often presented as one way to protect a company against the risks associated with being sued for IP infringement. However, we understand some IP insurance policies referred to as an abatement enforcement coverage can also be more offensive and cover risks and costs related to enforcing one's rights. Can you run us through the main type of policies available to protect one's IP assets and strategies? So from the abatement and enforcement standpoint, those are, at least in our experience, far and few between, um, because underwriters are not always looking from the standpoint of wanting to be on the offensive side. It is available, and uh, there is obviously uh, a completely independent topic of litigation funding that exists out there that might be interested in this stuff. But from an insurance perspective, the coverage gives the policyholder in these instances, the financial resources to enforce their IP rights and pursue infringement claims. So they're helping them fund the litigation. It also covers some of those contractual indemnities that I mentioned earlier and contractual disputes that are related to IP licensing. All of these things where it's dollars and cents out of the pocket of the individual that wants to bring the action against an infringer. You mentioned earlier the comprehensive, the commercial general liability policy and its impact here uh, as well. There are typically exclusions that exist. I'm not a CGL expert, but what I do know is there are exclusions that do exist in a, a variety, if not a majority of the policies dealing with intellectual property issues uh, and to think that the CGL policy might be sort of the place to, to put some of this coverage, I think would be incorrect given the nature of the exclusionary language that exists there. Because if you think about it, IP infringement claims, and you can look at this from the CGL perspective and why it's not typically covered there. And to go back to your point, Audrey, about the abatement or offensive component, it deals with issues of ownership, who owns the IP, who originated the IP, and whether somebody has you know, unauthorized use or reproduction of those protected works. And so it, carriers today uh, will evaluate the possibility of an insurance policy for the offensive or abatement type coverage. Those are far and few between, and you also have to be prepared to have a dialogue with the carrier about the specific nature of what it is and the matter or situation that you want them to consider. In this instance, it cannot be open-ended. They need to understand what it's for, how you're gonna utilize it, and then determine if they have an appetite to underwrite it. Sure. Jack, zooming in on what it means to get 
IP insurance coverage, are there prerequisites to complete prior to signing up for an IP insurance policy, including IP portfolio inventory and maintenance, pre-existing rights verifications, or maybe others? The basic prerequisite is a, I'd say, fairly comprehensive application process, which would uh, really contain the majority of the information that an underwriter would be required to entertain uh, a particular risk. Now, having said that, I would say that in many instances, it's not going to be in all instances, but certainly in many, the underwriter will, may, will most likely want to have a dialogue, understand certain things in the application, uh, things like the inventory of, uh, of patents, things like the, where the business is heading, and in many instances, ask for information that a company might feel a bit uncomfortable sharing in print, but might be comfortable in having a dialogue about. So from our standpoint, you know, we would look to execute NDAs to make sure that there could be a common sort of dialogue that exists between the underwriter and the prospective insured, coupled with the application and any backup documents to that application the underwriter might uh, desire, if you will. But those are the basic things from a prerequisite standpoint. Okay. I have another very practical question. Uh, can businesses sign up at any time through the IP development life cycle, or is there a requirement to sign up upon inception, upon registration, or maybe other moments? So the way it works is, number one, a, a prospective insured can... Uh, fill out an application at any point uh, or at any time. The questions that might get asked would be, are there any pending patents? Are there any uh, unique things, if you will, that are going on just so that there's a full and free flow of information for the underwriter? But the more important thing to keep in mind is that there will be some questions whenever you sign up based on knowledge, or pending claim situations. So the one thing an underwriter will not want to sort of get involved with will be a known problem or a known situation that might develop into a problem. Those would typically be excluded as a result of the underwriting process. Now, as we spoke about earlier, there might be some unique products available, some other buckets, if you will, as we described earlier for the known situation, but for the traditional intellectual property product, there'll be a knowledge question, and it'll act almost like a warranty that you're not aware of anything that could give rise to a claim. No one has made, and there are no claims. So aside from that, the application can be filled out at any point that the prospective insured would like to. Okay, very clear. Thank you. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. And what other policies may be considered in order for businesses to protect their IP assets beyond infringement claims? I think, for instance, about uh, cyber insurance. Right. So uh, cyber and, if you will, uh, some of the media professional liability policies are ones that I think historically were looked at as either areas where this coverage could attach 
or at least some of it attach. My own professional opinion is that's not really going to be the place for it, even though at some times there is a thought process that there might be some content overlap. So if you have some content online and there are issues, people would say, well, a media liability policy should most likely cover that. And depending on what the nature of the situation is, it might very well. But when it comes to intellectual property infringement, it's different than the professional liability. So while I think people will at times attempt to wedge it into either of those policies, I don't believe that the percentage success rate would be great. It, this is a policy nowadays that's gaining more interest for a very simple reason, which I'm sure, Audrey, you're aware of. If you go back in time um, and you look at where things were 30, 40 years ago, the overwhelming majority of company assets were tangible assets. And when you look at it today, it's completely flipped. Mm-hmm. And so it's less tangible and the number, the percentages are way higher on the intangible side. So my own sort of thought process very simply is, is that this IP insurance is very similar, if you will, to what cyber was, um, let's just say eight to 10 years ago, when few people looked at it, few people looked to buy it, few people understood it. And then when you look today, it is a boardroom issue that for public companies, regulators are interested in making sure that people on the board are familiar with it and addressing it. And I think that IP is traveling down that very same path. Uh, Any other specific steps you would like to recommend to our listeners to mitigate these risks based on your experience managing risks on behalf of international groups? So I think that like everything else, I think best practices are needed and they're probably you know, not there and certainly not codified in the same way that they have started to become, if you will, from both cyber, uh, even employment practices, which went uh, was similar, you know, 15 to 20 years ago and the like. I think that is very critical. I think companies need to understand one thing uh, and something that I believe in, and that is, look, you have to prepare for it. It's not going anywhere. It is here as people see and as companies grow and companies evolve. Because when, you know, up until 12 months ago, not many people were talking about artificial intelligence or the companies that are providing all of that type of information. Six, eight, nine months ago, it's, it's a rarity now that you turn on a news program or a business publication that won't have some aspect of that in there. So artificial intelligence, quantum computing, all of these things that are evolving, it's all going to be inclusive of issues of IP, right? That's what it is at the end of the day. It, is, it will be a company's intellectual property that they develop in each of these areas that is extraordinarily fluid and extraordinarily broad in terms of what it is that is probably on the horizon. So companies need to be prepared. And I think that they need to work with their internal sort of risk management group and their external sort of partners. And those partners can be consultants, brokers, their law firms and or accounting firms, whoever, whatever 
combination thereof to try and develop the best practices that they can. Because if the percentages continue to go up, and I expect they will, that companies that are working off of intangible assets versus the tangible number, mm -hmm. which is currently probably close to 90% of companies, that it's the vast majority of it, the values of these intangible assets are in the tens of trillions of dollars. And it's a lot of money and it can be the livelihood of a company. So risk management becomes key. It becomes important to work with people that are sort of looking around the corner and have an understanding as to what the potential exposures in the future may be. Um, you know, closing the door after all the animals have left the barn doesn't help. Closing the door while they're still in makes sense. And that's really what people need to think about. Sure. And just to add to what you just said about artificial intelligence, do you believe that IP insurance is, let's say, a proper answer to it, given all the challenges it raises? There are tons of challenges, both from a professional... <laughs> yeah. One of, one of the solutions. But the reason why I mentioned it was because it's a technology uh -huh. and technology is being developed in a variety of formats by multiple companies on a global basis. And, you know, everyone's going to start to wonder who's using whose technology at some point. And so do I think it's an answer? I don't think it's a panacea, but I do think that if at the end of the day, a company relies on the development of this type of technology as their livelihood, then they're going to want to make sure that their risk management approach and whatever insurance they can get to help them in this space address these issues in case there is that type of a war between competing technology companies, they should seriously consider it. I have one last question for you, Jack. Any yeah. book you have read recently and that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, um, well, I spend a lot of time reading things for work, so I don't get enough pleasure time. Well, but I will tell you, there's it's a book, and it also has to do with uh, other things that I've worked upon on in the past, and I find it fascinating. It's a book called The Empire of Pain, and it has to do with the crisis in the opioid space that we've all read about for many, many years now. Um, and it's it's a real story as opposed to fiction. And um, reading through it and how things developed in this area is incredibly interesting and scary at the same time. But it's a, it's a book that I'm enjoying very much. Thank you so much uh, for, for this discussion, Jack. My pleasure. Thank you, Audrey. So our guest today was Jack Flug, Managing Director at March in New York. Thank you. Inta is pleased to invite you to partake in its new Finance for Non-Finance Legal Professionals Certificate Program, designed to help you overcome your financial fears, deepen your understanding of finance basics, and become an indispensable partner to your finance team. The internationally informed curriculum is not jurisdiction-specific. Divided into 10 accessible chapters, the course is designed by experienced finance and legal professionals. Learn more and access the program at inta.org. 
Thank you for listening to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.